Good morning. It's great to see everybody this morning. My name is Adam Young, the lead pastor here at Element Church. And just as Trevor mentioned a second ago, we are uh, walking through the book of James together and are actually opening up and beginning chapter four today. There's only five chapters, so we're, we're well beyond halfway already. I don't know if it feels like it has gone really quickly to you, but it certainly has to me. Now, last week we took a break from studying James. We did something a little bit different. But the last time we were in James, two weeks ago, we talked about wisdom. We talked about the difference between true wisdom and false wisdom. This true wisdom that comes from God and God alone, this false wisdom that comes from this world. And how do you know if you've embraced true versus false wisdom? Well, James says you'll know that by just looking at how you live your life. If you look at your actions, that'll tell you whether you uh, have embraced true wisdom or false wisdom. And today as we jump into chapter 4, James is sort of going to continue this idea of contrasting the things of God and the things of this world. And specifically he's going to talk about those who love God versus those who love the world. And so we're going to jump into James chapter 4 together. So like we do every week in this series, I'm going to read through the 12 verses that we're talking about today and then we'll break them up into smaller, more manageable pieces that we'll work through together. And so we will start in James chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, if you want to follow along, you can of course follow along on the screen, but also through the Bible app by using the QR code, or you can just search for Element Church in your Bible app. And as James transitions to chapter 4, he begins like this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But, you, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And so before we break this down into smaller, more manageable pieces, I just want to think back for a moment on where we've been in this whole series as we've been studying the book of James together. Listen, there are problems within the churches James is writing to. Hopefully that's not a secret or a surprise to you if you've been a part of this journey. 
I mean, even today, he's calling them out for fighting and quarreling and judging and um, selfish ambitions and passions. And, and throughout this whole letter, he's really just been addressing some big problems that individuals and groups within some of the churches that he's writing to are facing. Now, it'd be easy for us to judge, to judge those that, are, that James is speaking to, because it seems like they have a lot of problems and get a lot wrong. But if we're honest, this is not a first century problem. This is not a first century Christian or church problem. This is a human problem. That as humans, we love to find reasons to create division. That we're constantly fighting and quarreling and arguing and and letting our own selfish desires and ambitions and passions cause trouble. Not that I needed to teach or, or tell any of you that. I don't care how old you are in here. You've lived life long enough to know. That's just what we do as humans because there's sin dwelling inside of us. But as if we needed more evidence, 2020 and 2021 were perfect case studies of the absurdity of the kinds of things that we can argue about and use as markers to create division. But here's the big picture of what James is doing in his letter. More than anything else, I mean, yes, he's addressing specific issues that are going on with individuals and churches, but here's his big point and issue. Are you in or are you out? When it comes to Jesus, are you in or are you out? We all know what the right answer is, and so did James's audience. They knew what the right answer was. But James is saying, don't just tell me, show me. Are you in or are you out? This is the exact kind of thing that Jesus taught. When he confronted people in his own life and ministry, some of the very reasons why he was killed, because he drew a line in the sand. He says, either you're in or you're not. Look here with me in Luke chapter eleven twenty three. Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are two options. You're either with me or you're against me. There is no middle ground. Jesus, in speaking to one of the churches in the late first century, through the author John in the book of Revelation, says this to one of the churches. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth what James is saying in his letter is just what Jesus taught as well either you're in or you're out you're either in or you're out so which one is it you see James and we've already talked about this so many times in this series James James experienced such a radical transformation in his own life that he struggles to understand how someone could only be half in on their faith. Because there are two options. Either A, Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then that means God vindicated his life, his ministry, his teachings, vindicated his death. If Jesus rose from the grave, then it means he is who he said he was and he is deserving of every ounce of worship and loyalty you could give to him. 
If he rose from the dead, then it means he really was and is the creator and the king of the universe. And so to turn your back on him is cosmic treason. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. But even Paul taught this. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then you and I are, should be pitied more than anyone else in this world because we have wasted our lives believing and spreading and following a lie. So the question isn't, are you in or are you out? The question is, did Jesus raise from the dead or not? Because how you answer that question should automatically determine whether you're in or whether you're at. But there's no middle ground with Jesus. One of the most well-known authors, you might even say philosophers and sort of amateur theologians of the 20th century, was a guy named C.S. Lewis. Many of you might be familiar with some of his writings or his works and the things that he did. The Chronicles of Narnia being one of those. At some point, C.S. Lewis did not believe in Jesus, but his friend, J.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings series, shared the gospel with C.S. Lewis, and he came to a place of believing. Jesus resurrected from the dead, and it changed everything about his life. And he began writing and encouraging others to believe in Jesus as well. And and I want to read a passage out of a book called Mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis wrote, kind of talking about this same idea of how could, you, how could there be middle ground when it comes to Jesus? And C.S. Lewis would argue there is none. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so what I want to do is I want to break down chapters, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, into three sections. What's the problem? What are the causes? And what's the solution? And so we'll turn first to the problem. So what is the problem that James is trying to address with his readers, with these first century Christians? We get a glimpse of it in verses 1 and 11. Now, there's, it's actually scattered throughout the whole passage, but it'd kind of be silly for me to read 1 through 12 all over again. Because this at least highlights what is the most strong and intense problems. That these churches and these Christians were dealing with with fights and with quarrels, with conflicts, disputes, speaking evil of one another, and judgmentalism. Now, I get that this letter was written 2,000 years ago, but as we said a moment ago, this is not a first century problem. 
This is not a problem unique to James and his churches. This is a human problem. Now, I had actually wrote a list in my notes as I was preparing the message this week of all the things that in just the last 18 months, churches and Christians who should be united together, right? Our belief in the resurrection should be far stronger of a unifying factor than anything we might disagree with. And we will disagree. That's okay. But I made this list full of all the things that have created division in churches and amongst Christians in the last 18 months. And to be honest, I just don't want to read the list. I'm so tired of talking about it. I'm so tired of thinking about it. I'm so tired of talking with other pastors about it. Now, I'll say this. Element Church has been amazing over the last 18 months. I mean, at every step of the way, we were throwing a curveball. Like, we don't have the greatest or the most intricate system of technology, but in less than 48 hours, we figured out how to film an online service, how to film a service and host an online worship service together. It wasn't ideal, but we gathered weekly to worship together through our computers and even found ways to gather in community. As Trevor so clearly put it earlier about how important it is. And if you want a good reason to believe what Trevor had to say, when he said he's going back to school, Trevor's not going for his bachelor's. He's getting his PhD in adult education. He knows what he's talking about. The need for community is what is at is central to who we are because we were designed to live in community, designed to need other people. We figured out a way to do it. We started meeting together again and we couldn't do nursery or preschool because we couldn't rent the classroom. So we figured out how to do worship all together as families. We're still figuring it out. Our church has been amazing, but it only takes one quick glimpse at Facebook or Twitter or what other cesspool of social media you want to look at and see the division that is created amongst people. So I don't want to go through it, but we know it's a reality. And it's not a first century problem, it's a human problem. What I'd rather talk about is what is the cause or causes and what are the solutions. James 4 verses 2 through 4. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so as we talk about the causes of these fights and these quarrels and the division and judgment and speaking evil of one another, we see that a lot of the cause of these problems come from misguided desires, selfish passions, and befriending the world. Now here's here's what I want to say. We don't have any evidence to suggest exactly how James's churches might have been, quote, befriending the world. There's no explicit evidence in the letter Um, that says that the readers were overtly um, disclaiming God and they were consciously deciding to follow the world instead of God. But what we get is a picture, not at what they were claiming or believing, but at what they were doing and how that revealed the condition of their hearts. They had a tendency to imitate the world 
by discriminating against people. If you were with us, we talked about that in James chapter 2. They were speaking negatively of others, first half of chapter 3. They were exhibiting bitter envy and selfish ambition, the second half of chapter 3. And they were pursuing their own destructive pleasures, as we see in chapter 4. James wants to raise the stakes so that his readers see their compromising conduct for what it really is. God tolerates no rival. When believers behave in a worldly manner, they demonstrate that at that point, their allegiance is to the world rather than to God. And what James does is he pulls out some Old Testament wording and ideas to illustrate that. Remember, James was a Jew. So were the majority of people in his churches that he was leading and writing to. And so they understood the Old Testament well. The Old Testament are the Jewish scriptures. And when they became followers of Jesus, they didn't abandon one religion for another. They, they recognized Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish promise. By believing and worshiping and following Jesus, you're more truly Jewish than those who don't. But they cherished the Old Testament. It was for the first century the Christian scriptures until some of these other letters started getting written and collected. But he uses this analogy that's very popular in the Old Testament by calling them adulterous people. You see, idolatry is unfaithfulness to the one true God. Adultery is unfaithfulness to the one you pledged your life to. And what the Bible teaches is that God has, in essence, married his people. He has taken them to himself. And every time we turn our back on God, it's not just idolatry, worshiping idols, it's adultery. It's being unfaithful to the one we were promised to. It's being unfaithful to the one who we pledged our lives to. This is a really common way of talking about sinful activities in the Old Testament is, is it committing adultery against God. Because when we hear the word idolatry, we usually think of like bowing down to like a little statue or burning incense to some other God or something. And while that is idolatry, the preferred picture in the Bible is adultery. You have turned your back and been unfaithful to the one you were promised to. You have begun flirting with other things. And here James says, you've begun to flirt with the world and in doing so, turned your back on God. Your affections and your dreams have started to turn towards another rather than God. And so what's the solution? We see the solution in James chapter 4, verses 7 and the first part of 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The solution is to resist and to draw near. The solution is to turn your back to the one you've been flirting with and instead turn your face and your heart and your attention and your affections to the one you've been promised to. So what does it look like to resist and then draw near? And he's going, to say, he's going to tell us in just the next couple of verses. So this is the second half of eight. We only read the first half of eight just a second ago, all the way through 10. So this is what it looks like to resist the devil. 
to resist temptation, draw near to God, to, to resist the flirt, flirting temptation to another and embrace the one you've been promised to. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Does anyone else read that and just think, that seems a little drastic and dramatic? Like, okay, James, I get you like to use extremes to communicate your message. You're pushing a little hard here. Like, I'm supposed to turn my laughter into mourning and gloom? Like, little extreme, right? But maybe it's not. Because think about the analogy that he's using. He's using an analogy of adultery. This may be an odd exercise or weird. It's okay. I want to imagine that you've just been caught flirting with someone who's not your spouse. This will be easier if you're married to feel the stress and the weight. You've just been caught flirting with another. You've just been caught entertaining thoughts of being with someone else. You've just been caught running after someone else rather than the one you've been promised to. If, if that were to happen, what would be the appropriate response to your spouse who you've betrayed? What would be the appropriate way to approach your spouse that you've been unfaithful to? probably sounds like this to come and repent for how you have failed them and broken your promise to own your failures your mistakes your adultery to humble yourself listen james is not afraid to use extreme language just to make a point here i don't think that's what he's doing I think he's describing exactly what would be required of someone who was caught flirting with, with someone who they were not promised to, they're not their spouse, who, who had or had begun the process of committing adultery. This is what the appropriate response would look like. And if we have committed adultery on God, who we are promised to, who we belong to, this is how we repent of that idolatry or, and adultery. So how is this even possible? What makes it possible to have committed adultery on God yet turn back to him? And we read it, but we read it quickly and moved on. But the answer is in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when we humble ourselves before him, God's grace abundantly flows out. That though we deserve it, he doesn't turn his back on us. That though we have broken our promise, he remains faithful to his. So the question is, are you in or are you out? For James, there's no middle ground. Are you in or are you out? Are you promised to the one true God and will you remain faithful to him? Or will you reject him and move on? Whatever it is, make your decision. Are you in or are you out? That question that James is putting on his readers throughout the letter is the question I want you to think about and reflect on and answer today. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we are completely undeserving of your grace. Because the reality is none of us have committed adultery and idolatry on you once or twice, but we do it over and over and over again because we just keep flirting with the things of this world, thinking that maybe what this world can promise us is better than what you can deliver to us. Lord, we repent of our adulterous ways, our hearts that tend to just keep going astray. And we are so humbled that there is more grace, that you just keep giving more grace, this undeserved, unmerited favor. Not because we are good, but because you are good. Not because we are worthy, but because you are worthy. Lord, would you break our hearts for the sin in our lives? Would you draw us into you? That as we resist that temptation to flirt with the world, as we resist Satan and his schemes, that we would draw near to you. By your grace, would you help us draw near to you today? And whatever we need to do, to confess our sin, to confess our failures, to ask for your forgiveness, to celebrate and sing about and praise you for your grace. May we do that in this moment. May we not leave this place without taking care of business and doing what needs to be done. To give you our heart, the only one who is worthy of it and who has purchased it by your blood.